Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the mic, starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlatnik, and today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome uh, Eric Goodman uh, to the episode. Hi, Eric. Hi, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you again for coming as a repeat guest. Uh, I believe you came um, a while, while back, and it um, feels like now it's the best time to bring you back because we are in New York City. And um, it's been a center of uh, pandemic, and it's been a center of um, economic uh, uncertainty in, in the recent days. So uh, we're now sort of in the post-COVID world, and things are pretty dynamic now. Um, so just would love to hear your thoughts. What do you see? What's happening right now from the deal flow, from your investments, and Full disclosure, we invested with Eric from um, a couple of our funds, from Tempo Opportunity and Tempo Growth into Goodman Capital Fund 2. Love working with Eric. Uh, he's a bright, bright, a brilliant guy. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to work with you. So let's just chat, chat a little bit about your past investments, the new stuff that's coming up, where are we going, what's happening in New York City. So I'll let you have the floor. Absolutely, Mike. Well, again, appreciate for having me on. And uh, like you said, there's really uh, New York City has really become quite a dynamic environment uh, since uh, even prior to the uh, onset of COVID, which uh, our first reported case was back in March 1st. And I'd say that the onset since March has only made it even more interesting, particularly for this distressed uh, debt space in which we've been investing. Um, I guess for the benefit uh, of uh, of, of those in the, uh, those listening, Mike, I'll give you just a quick, uh, as you know, uh, we've been investing in New York City for the better part of the last 30 years. We're a multi-generational business focusing uh, strictly on distressed commercial paper, particularly first lien paper, and uh, particularly secured by existing stable liquid uh, assets. These take the form primarily of multifamily assets. They are typically residential assets, but but they're also, these are technically commercial properties. They're typically above four families. And so the types of debt in which we buy that's secured by, the, by this collateral has a, a particular nuance that we specialize in. So the types of assets that we've always invested in, uh, uh, again, uh, existing stable quality multifamily mixed use uh, residential assets are the same types of uh, properties that are securing the loans today, uh, which we're sourcing uh, and investing in. Um, now, I, I, I guess what's interesting, if you look from March 1st to where we are today, New York City has undergone quite an interesting um, transformation, right? Uh, March 1st, we had our first COVID case confirmed. March 22nd, our governor uh, implemented the stay-at-home or pause order, effectively putting uh, a shutdown to all non-essential businesses. And that really is the catalyst for a lot of the distress, commercial-based distress you now see today. Thankfully, after uh, just at the end of July, we finally exited uh, phase four of the four phase reopening. And now most things, most forms uh, of commercial enterprise are open except for still gyms, uh, movie theaters, there's still limited indoor dining. Um, but beyond that, pretty much uh, a, a lot of the, uh, the other retail and commercial corridors uh, have now been open. Um, what's interesting is 
over that over that period, you've seen uh, you know quite a bit of headlines, right? You've seen talks of migration leaving New York City and and the impact that's had. Um, I actually don't uh, have a few interesting insights on that. Uh, but what you don't hear as much about is a lot of the big tech moving into the city uh, between Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple, and, and all those big players. Um, you look at just last month, uh, Facebook took over the oh, former U.S. post office, uh, 730,000 square feet. They, uh, they took over the Farley post office. They now uh, occupy over 2 million square feet. Amazon, over 2 million square feet. They picked up the Lord and Taylor building for a billion dollars uh, in March at the start of COVID. So for all the negative headlines you get, which you don't hear unless you're really in the local thick of things, is actually how vibrant the tech community is building up right now. And as a consequence, what you're going to see is, is, the, is, is that subsequent demand for housing. Yes, there's also discussion of migration out of the city to the suburbs. A lot of that, if you look uh, into the U.S. postal data, it's interesting. I read an article uh, last night about um, the Postal Service uh, request for mail forwarding rates. There were about 150,000 uh, mail forwarding re uh, requests through September uh, just last month. And a lot of that is to Long Island, Connecticut, a lot of the second home communities, which suggests that that exodus, that with that phrasing of it is, is a lot overblown. And really, once you have a little more clarity of whether there's a second wave uh, and, and, and perhaps post-political election, I think we'll see a lot more of that migration come back. So I, I think now is really an interesting time to be super selective on, on the assets that we're underwriting, because I think the future um, and, and the near-term future is actually look uh, quite a bit brighter than, than the way the news uh, casts it today. Yeah, I appreciate that great explanation. This is a very, very interesting point. So in the short run, it feels like a number of folks have left the city temporarily uh, because all the kind of city activities that, that are um, magnet to tourists, magnet to local residents, the Broadway, uh, the restaurants, um, the museums, the parks are sort of in this you know, post-COVID world where they're shut down or operating at a very low capacity and um, uh, we're waiting for sort of a wave two, which is already here in some in some form or shape. Uh, I'm in Brooklyn and kind of uh, in the red zone. So we, we are, we, we've entered this, this again, wave two shutdown, schools are out. Um, but I, I, I do believe it's temporary. New York City had 9-11 and for a couple of years it was tough. Downtown Manhattan then came back as things restabilize. The real estate uh, seems to come back. So I acknowledge and agree with that position that we're in this temporary uh, dislocation, but on a long-term basis, um, it feels like when uh, there is a good solution for COVID in the form of vaccine and in the form of uh, uh, other um, uh, therapeutics, uh, the city will reopen. Uh, so l let's talk a little bit about uh, the difference between what you invest in and some of the um, kind of risk assets today. And, and the reason I call them risk assets is because they're pretty obviously at, at risk of um, financial default. Uh, there was an article uh, the other day I forwarded you in the Wall Street Journal that many CMBS um, securities are trading at a discount uh, because they, they, they are pools of loans secured by hotels, secured by some of the retail uh, real estate, that's, that's suffering right now massively. And those, are, those bonds are, are, um, are you know, trading at a discount, while the things you invest in 
in these uh, type of um, uh, multifamily pseudo commercial assets. They're not uh, they're technically commercial because they they are more than four doors, uh, but uh, they they are catered to the um, living um, sort of residential uh, kind of environments of mixed use. So let's differentiate between between the two. Uh, what's what's in massive pain uh, in New York now, and what kind of assets are are, are doing okay? Absolutely, Mike. And, and even uh, to harp on one of the points you just made with that article, which I, I appreciate you sending over. You know that that article even highlighted really two main components: there are structural differences and asset based differences um, between. Uh, what we do and, and what the commercial uh, assets that were discussed in the article, uh, to your point though specifically, the assets that are feeling the most pain really lie in the in the hospitality and the retail sectors, right? These are seasonal businesses as well as management intensive businesses that are of course undergoing um, a, a real tectonic shift uh, born from uh, the, the the political pressures uh, and and um, and, ju- and just those segments of the industry that, that have not uh, been allowed to reopen uh, as many others have. So you look at, uh, at the prime retail corridors of Soho, the Upper East Side, a lot of those stores are still closed because of the, of the, of the pending shutdown. Uh, and just it's been difficult to attract certain tourist activity, right? It, it, we're, we, we have certain, um, if you will, uh, international travel, many travel restrictions, right? Barring foreigners from coming to the U.S., U.S. going abroad, that's, that's impacting some of those sectors, um, some of the hospitality has been repurposed, uh, some of the Upper West Side, some down uh, in, 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 on the Lower West Side of Manhattan. Uh, and there are certain partnerships with the Department of Homeland Services, which are now being used to house homeless shelters and other family shelters that will be repurposed. But there's going to be a bit of a lag in, in the lease up periods of those. And there's other confounding variables that are really impacting um, that retail and hospitality sector compared to, as you mentioned, the commercial assets in which we invest, which are, 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 are nothing more than just multifamily dwellings, but they do fa- they, they're deemed commercial assets. And for a very particular reason, when loans are, are originated to, to bars of commercial, namely multifamily uh, o- uh, owners with, with assets that are, are above four family, then we can charge certain terms and rates that we otherwise could not charge them on a personal loan or in a primary home residence. So the nuance there is really more uh, legal in nature, these are really residential assets, and because of that, they're very stable and sticky, right? We're we're not underwriting against assets that are super premium, high-level condo, $10,000 a foot exit pricing, where those assets will be saddled and, and will sit until the market catches up and, and can saturate that kind of inventory. Our, the, the units that are securing or occupying the buildings in which uh, that secure our loans, right? This is, we're talking, you know, B minus, B plus type quality, uh, these assets are going for sub $2,000 a foot. This is not super luxury. It's not um, inclusionary uh, low-income housing. Uh, it's typically that, that B- to B-plus type housing, which historically through all market cycles tends to be the stickiest and most robust. Um, I'd say that's from an asset side. But then just on the structural side, if I may, the article highlighted one other interesting di- uh, dif- uh, discrepancy between the CNBS side versus what we do. We're underwriting uh, each of our loans are single asset loans. One loan secured by one by one uh, piece of property, typically also a borrower guarantor. There's a lot of control over the loan workout process, whether it's foreclosure, working solutions out with a borrower to uh, to affect a certain result. CMBS securities are very nuanced, very complex securities, as you mentioned, are bundled by pools of loans. They're typically overseen and managed by servicers and subservicers. There's a there's a, a, a labyrinth of, of fees to 
um, pay off these types of loans. And so that level of control is not there in the same way it would be with a single asset loan. And that's another reason that, that accounts for their um, trading at, at discounts to book. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, by the way, just a couple of comments. It's funny, you know, you say it's B-class assets in New York City and they're only $2,000 a foot. <laughs> if you compare that to anywhere else, uh, things don't trade at that type of price. Uh, but for um, for the assets you invest in, you know what's most interesting? We had a call the other day, last Friday, we're going over the portfolio and you made an interesting comment that the loans, because you invest in the loans, not in the equity of these, uh, the, the loans are at about $1,000 a foot versus the collateral is 2,000 plus a foot. They're pretty safe, pretty defensive loan to value ratios. They're still New York prices. Uh, and these type of assets are uh, townhouses uh, in the upper east or upper west side, which have very limited supply. So. Uh, anyway, let's just shift forward a little bit uh, on where you see things are going from new opportunities perspective. Um, uh, are banks uh, still giving people forbearance? Are they extending forbearance? Which point will some of the distressed assets uh, seem to come to the market? Because um, a lot of investors have raised a ton of capital sitting and waiting for these great opportunities, but they, they are sort of not happening or have been very difficult to find because the banks are not aggressive at all uh, selling the paper. I guess the regulators are giving them plenty of time to take it easy, not to uh, allocate all kinds of reserves. So what do you see happening? We are now, we are recording this uh, in late October. This will come out in about a month at that point post-election. So let's leave election alone. And then, uh, but what do you see happening uh, from the opportunities to invest in great deals uh, in the things you invest in in New York? Sure, uh, Mike, it's, it's a great question. And just broadly speaking, right, these mar the periods of market uncertainty uh, generally create limited periods of, of limited access to capital for, for two types of end users, right? There are borrowers who have approaching loan maturities and they're in need of a refi. Uh, but then don't forget the other side of the coin, as you know, Mike, there are other lenders who rely on certain bank warehouse lines of credit to fund their businesses. And both right now are, are, are in distress. Uh, not surprisingly, the first wave, like we saw in the financial crisis, was the first wave of distressed private loans from the private lenders. Um, we've been very, very quite selective. Um, tip, as you know, typical underwriting, uh, we, we identify loans that are at sub 65% loan to value. Underwriting the post-COVID world, we've reduced that even further to right around 50% loan-to-value. And again, focusing strictly on liquid income generative existing multifamily mixed-use residential assets, nothing like the seasonal retail or manager intensive like hospitality assets, which those have started to trade on, on the bank side of the portfolio. Banks have already been very quick to try and, and move some of the more retail and hospitality beaten down assets. But the core um, mixed-use multifamily assets those have not traded as much from the bank side. We, we, we picked up a, a few earlier on this year, as you know, some very attractive uh, multifamily assets right by the Guggenheim Museum uh, at very attractive bases. These these were, I would think are, I would consider more unique and one-off in the broader scheme of what we had anticipated the pipeline to look like from the traditional bank lender. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, in contrast to the financial crisis, we haven't seen that, that strong uptick in activity of traditional lenders peaking up a lot of their product, at least not to the extent we expected. But that raises a question because 
we do see quite a bit of product from the private lender universe. And so there is a certain conformity of underwriting. And it does raise the question, if the private lenders are, are, are inundating us with, 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 uh, with their bad loan portfolios, what's going on with bank asset quality? And that brings me to the CARES Act, which, uh, as you know, was released on March 27th uh, of this year, right after the onset of COVID, and actually a subsequent regulatory guidance that was released a few weeks later on April 7th by the major bank agencies, namely the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, Controller of the Currency, and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I want to uh, focus on one quick set, uh, a particular section of the CARES Act, and that's Section 4013. Um, or more formally known as the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, um, which established some very favorable bank treatment for troubled debt restructurings. And, and for your viewers, I just give me, uh, I wanna explain what that is. Uh, a TDR occurs uh, when a bank restructures a loan and offers a concession of some, uh, uh, of some of the loan terms that it otherwise wouldn't have otherwise made to a borrower. That could be an, a reduction in interest rate, uh, accrued unpaid interest or principal amount of the loan. Think of TDRs as extreme loan modifications. And here's why they're important and, and why they're relevant to know it in, insofar as the CARES Act is concerned. Provided banks made these extreme loan modifications before the anticipated borrower default resulting from COVID-related distress. Section 4013 of the CARES Act allows banks to report these loan modifications as performing loans and not as TDRs, which carry very burdensome risk weighting when it comes to calculating a bank's risk-based capital threshold as required by the bank regulators. This is huge because unlike during the financial crisis where banks were coughing up bad loans and fold, today the regulatory environment allows banks to mask poor asset quality and whitewash a sub or non-performing loan as performing. And the regulatory guidance released a few weeks later on April 7th further applies the masking to general non-accrual loans which occur when a borrower has failed to make a payment for 90 days. So there's a, this general regulatory framework is single-handedly responsible for why you don't see this deluge of non-performers in the bank books, provided that they were able to make, as many banks were, uh, uh, loan modifications in advance of that default. But there's good news, uh, and, and there's a silver lining to the story. And that is, under the CARES Act, the TDR and non-accrual exemption lasts only until the earlier of 1231 of this year or 60 days after the designation of COVID is no longer a national emergency. So right now we're in active dialogue with our bank lenders with whom we've worked for many years. And from what I hear, while they were extending forbearance in March, for they, many offer the typical three month forbearance start in March, they, 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 they re-upped again in June, we're coming to the end of the line and I think we're gonna have a very busy year end and even busier starts the early next year uh, with a lot of the bank product that I think is gonna start hitting the market. Um, and uh, we're pretty excited for it. Yeah, that's, that's a very detailed view on what's happening with bank assets and how the CARES Act has given them a um, get out of jail card for the time being until you said December 31st or um, the governor declaring um, the end of the uh, the state of emergency related to COVID. So it feels like the deal flow will be improving um, effectively at the very end of this year and, and uh, into the uh, 2021, because uh, unless they extend it, I mean, you, you never know, politicians can 
try to jam in uh, some kind of extension. Um, although uh, after the election, there's less motivation to, um, uh, depending on what, what happens uh, with the election, there may be uh, more extension or not. It's hard to say, but you know, we, we shall uh, wait and see. The, um, let's, let's continue chatting. So kind of interesting, um, the supply of the product that you invest in is limited. Uh, there's a massive oversupply of condos and uh, uh, hotels obviously distressed. Anything, any retail related to um, travel, related to people coming into Manhattan to work, to you know, uh, leisure, enjoy their leisure time, all of that is in deep distress. Are you seeing any interesting opportunities there? Or uh, it's more of a, at this point, um, really, really distressed situations because the, the, these type of assets, um, uh, it, it'll take a lot of capital to keep them afloat. Um, uh, so as you know, we've made some investments in conversions of hotels to affordable housing. Not sure if it's applicable here in New York. Uh, we've done investments outside of New York. Uh, it's obviously an interesting thought here, but the supply of units at the, of condos is high and these hotels um i don't know if the the conversion would make any sense uh because of the um the alternative supply just curious if you have any any thoughts on are you going to see any interesting opportunities buying that paper or at this point it's very speculative you you'll know when you see it well i think mike it's a great point and i'm always um uh, very impressed by your creativity with repurposing assets you're really uh, second to none on that front in New York, it's a little, as you know, it's a little challenging because of very stringent zoning uh, rules and regulations to convert um, hotel to resi. It is done on occasion. I mean, the most notable one I, I, I might say is probably uh, the Waldorf Astoria was converted to condos. Um, you see a little bit more of office to resi conversion, condo conversions. You've seen that a lot more now uh, uh, down in the financial district. That's been an interesting play. What I think will be particularly unique and, and certainly an area of focus for us, we have a few deals right now that we're eyeing, uh, has been new completed construction on condo inventory that's not selling. So as soon as you have a condo project that's built and, and, and there's a certain percentage that's been sold, that becomes a very difficult to finance asset. And particularly of the institutional quality sponsors who now are stuck uh, with, with semi-sold condo buildings, they're only out as a condo inventory loan and those can get very expensive. So in our purview, it's, oh, we're, we're very much focused and we like to think of ourselves as basis buying. So if the loan basis is in at a sub-replacement cost basis, that becomes a very attractive asset. I, 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 I don't think the space for us, we don't have the, uh, I don't think we would add as much value to a, a hospitality-oriented conversion, but there's plenty, a, a superfluous amount of, of, of resi condo construction that's gone up where we're pretty much waiting in the wings, working with our, uh, our bank and private lender universe to sit and be, and be pretty selective when those loans come to maturity because we're fairly confident those sponsors, as we've seen already in the Upper West Side, some pretty notable developers, um, without naming names, they, uh, a few condo and co-op buildings have gone, uh, and you've seen a number of UCC foreclosure auctions in the Upper West Side and, 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 and the West Village in areas that historically have been um, dis uh, ha have not seen any such uh, financial distress. Today, you're seeing that particularly by the High Line as well, you have a few other new developers that, that are struggling. So we're pretty much, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say licking our lips, waiting uh, in the wing, but we're certainly going to be very opportunistic uh, and jump on those opportunities as they present themselves. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I remember we've gone to a number of these assets in, in Brooklyn, and and I remember the one on the uh, Newkirk Avenue. Uh, mm -hmm. We we looked at a newly constructed condo building, where the units are just not selling fast enough, and developers pressured because their loan is, uh, is has matured, and they were thinking they could move the these condos fast. And now there's a massive oversupply, so the opportunity is to come to these matured loans and uh, I guess buy them from the banks, who probably want the monkey off their back anyway. So Absolutely. And, and the nice thing about these assets, Mike, as you know, and, and why we, we have a particular focus on the multifamily mixed use sector is that they're, they're very liquid with what, what that means, not in terms of, of transactional value in terms of exiting, but to reclaim those assets post foreclosure, operate, lease up, refinance. There's, there are many tax favorable treatments for, for, uh, for, for leasing up and not executing a condo plan and provide that our loan basis is in at, at, at the right investment-to-value threshold, that can be a very attractive investment to own uh, as, as a rental refi and, uh, and hold until the market turns. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason I like your investment strategy is instead of building uh, a new condo, you could, you could buy distressed debt on a newly built, built condo, and you are at 50% cost basis, 55% cost basis. You would love to get the building uh, if you could. <laughs> so... Uh, it, it's a whole, you know, it's a very cheap access point if you can get, uh, if you can can get in. So that makes sense. I, th that sounds like a um, a great opportunity. Uh, we have five minutes left. A any other commentary thoughts? Um, uh, totally, you know, the floor is open. Uh, kind of anything you want to talk about? A any great ideas on? Um, uh, on uh, you're going to launch Fund 3. I know Fund 2 is closed and been closed for a while. Um, I know you've been doing the uh, uh, funding of the performing loans uh, with a backstop. Uh, if they default, uh, you, you could buy them into the, um, into the fund. I love that idea. That's a very powerful idea uh, because investors in the performing loan have a, an assurance if a loan goes bad, you're happy to buy it and it, it's a good uh, kind of, a, it's a good match. Um, any, any interesting thoughts on this? Any, any comments? Mike, it's, it's, uh, you, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth there. I was going to, um, you know, mention with, uh, uh, with fun to, uh, near full deployment, uh, and realizations coming in early next year, um, we're getting ready to launch, uh, two things. One will be, uh, our, our third fund, which will be again, uh, a similar uh, model as fund Two, a distressed debt oriented vehicle targeting non-performing loans accruing our, our standard default rates up to 24% per annum, focusing again strictly on first lien senior uh, commercial paper here in our local uh, New York City market. In tandem with that, we'll, we'll also be launching a sec, uh, we'll, we'll likely also launch a separate vehicle, as you mentioned, that will be more uh, uh, a more liquid credit strategy. So that will be performing bridge loan originations that, as you mentioned, will be backstopped uh, by, by fund three. And so what that means is we'll originate a, a new paper uh, secured again by the same kind of strict underwriting criteria that, that underlies our distressed debt strategy, except this will be a more liquid driven strategy for folks looking for current, uh, current income. And if and when those loans default, uh, Fund 3 will have the exclusive uh, opportunity to buy those loans for par, uh, returning back investors' principal in the liquid strategy. And I think those two um, opportunity. I think the two vehicles will be very, as you mentioned, uh, synergistic with each other. They'll it'll provide us with opportunities to originate to institutional quality borrowers 
who uh, otherwise need, are, are having difficulty accessing capital in these uncertain markets. So there'll be that liquid strategy. And then if and when those loans default, that will be a very organic transition to the def uh, defaulted uh, distressed debt uh, investment strategy. And we'll start to accrue those high rates of default interest. Um, and between the two, I'm excited to, to get uh, to launch those two vehicles uh, in the early part of next year. Yeah, that's great to hear. They're great complementary uh, funds or products. So I appreciate you sharing. Uh, how would folks get a hold of you? We're kind of running out of time. If, if anyone had questions that were interested to invest uh, or, or had some, some other things, is there a good website or, or, or email or another way to get a hold of you? Yes, the, the two probably best ways to get a hold would be through our website, which is www.goodmancapitalllc.com or directly via email at invest at goodmancapitalllc.com. And of course, they can always go through you, Big Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Appreciate your time and your wisdom. Uh, great to have you on the podcast. And um, stay well and safe. And we'll, we'll, we'll do another episode, hopefully at a better times when New York City is, uh, is doing well and prosperous. And we are New Yorkers for a long time. And uh, it's a great city, and I uh, believe they will come back. Um, so that's <laughs> that's the wisdom. And I'm looking forward to having you out with me, Mike, on one of our next site tours. We're going to have a Yeah, I got to go for a walk. I, I need to walk more. So when post-COVID, we'll, we'll walk uh, Manhattan or wherever we're going to walk. So until <laughs> that, that time. Uh, thank you kindly. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike Zlotnick. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.